This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. About once a month, we go through the pile of material that we've stacked up for use in this program and go through it. That means we don't expect to have a guest today, although we may hear from some old friends here before the hour is up. I hope so. But if we don't, believe you me, we've got enough material to plow through. So let us begin to plow. Before I start the program, as I like to do with On This Date in History, I want to point out a couple things taking place in the world of astronomy. First is that if you go out tonight, dear listener, and you look to the west, you will see a big triangle. In fact, it'll kind of be hard to miss. This will not, in fact, be the constellation of Triangulum, although I believe there there actually is such a mediocre, second-rate constellation there somewhere. No, this will be pretty impressive, and it will consist of the star Spica, or Spica, take your pick, and the two planets, Saturn and Mars. Mars will be in the lower right, looking red. Saturn will be the topmost of the triangle, looking rather cream-colored, and Spica will be a bluish-white. It'd be kind of a cool assortment of colors and something you're not going to see just every year. Therefore, I recommend you go out and check out this red, white, and blue spectacle. And of course, as you notice Mars in the lower right, keep in mind that we'll be landing on it again, or trying to, this Sunday night. Yours truly will be down in Pasadena for Planet Fest, hopefully hanging out with some of our pals at the Planetary Society, such as Planetary Radio's host, Matt Kaplan, and frequent Radio Parallax guest, Bruce Betts. We hope also to run into Scientific American columnist Bob Berman, whom we spoke to at great length uh, earlier this year about his book on the sun. It'll be a nice assortment of humans standing by to see what the robots can do with their human helpers here on Earth, on Mars. In fact, actually, there won't be any help coming from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. This landing on Mars is pre-programmed because Mars is going to be like 20 light minutes away, and there's there's no way you can communicate with this robot as it's trying to make its way down. But it's going to be a very interesting phenomenon. I hope you follow it. Uh, There's going to be some some websites that are going to be doing this, and I think even some local events. So check it out on the internet, and uh, let's see if they can get this big, sizable, sophisticated uh, science laboratory down on the Martian surface. They're having to use a screwball system of retro rockets uh, in conjunction with parachutes to, to use what they're calling it a sky crane to lower it down onto the surface. I, I hope it works. Eight years ago, this correspondent was down in Pasadena when they tried to land the Spirit rover on Mars. That was a success. They bounced that one inside of a giant ball, but this, uh, this, new, this new science lab is so big and heavy, they just, they just couldn't find a ball big enough to stick it inside. So I look forward to talking about this on next week's show. I hope there will be something to report about the Martian surface. And, uh, well, the odds are about, you know, in, based on past experience, probably about 50-50 this one's going to make it. So, fingers are crossed. We shall see. And at this point, let's move into the way we normally open the show, which is with On This Date in History. The date in question today is the 2nd of August. You know, which sort of approximates the February 2nd Groundhog Day. This is the, Today marks about the midpoint through the summer months. We should, we should have a summer solstice holiday, don't you think? Well, I don't mean summer solstice. I mean a midsummer celebration. 
And if you're thinking of Shakespeare as a Midsummer Night's Dream, uh, that would not apply here because that was a term they applied to the summer solstice, the longest date of the year. Why they called it Midsummer, I don't know. But at any rate, looking back uh, into the history book, it was on August 2nd in the year 216 BC that Hannibal defeated the Romans at the Battle of Cannae. And as a result, most of southern Italy allied itself with him. We would refer you to our own archives for a discussion of this and the life of Hannibal with Andreas Kluth. His book, Hannibal and Me, was most, uh, most interesting. We had a great time speaking with him about that. If you didn't hear that the first time, check it out at radioparallax.com. Must have been a big day in military history, for it was on August 2nd in 47 BC that the Roman general Julius Caesar beat the king of Pontus with such ease that he himself, acting as war correspondent, set back the famous message, Vini, Vidi, Vici, which means I came, I saw, I conquered. Which, let's face it, is pretty tough to beat for succinctness. Mr. Millen does offer a modern update of that, which is Vini, Vidi, Visa. I came, I saw, I went shopping. On this day in 1769, the area now known as Los Angeles was first noted as a likely place for a large settlement. That was by the Spanish explorer Gaspar de Bortola and Juan Crespi, an accompanying Franciscan priest. They stumbled upon the area while exploring north of San Diego and were impressed by the fertile land around a river, the Los Angeles River, that would provide, of course, irrigation water. The Los Angeles River is currently known as the Los Angeles Culvert, or ought to be since it's a big cement-lined trough for the most part. Thankfully, some far-sighted people in L.A. are looking at possibly restoring the L.A. River, and, and we hope they do. And unfortunately, never had enough water in it to support much of a population. We'll be talking about that later in the show. Since, as we like to point out, there's enough water in Southern California to support a population of about 1 million. They currently have over 20 million. Where does the water come from? Well, they have to steal it from somewhere else. And yes, we would use the verb steal. We'll talk more about that a little bit later. On August 2nd, 1830, the last Bourbon king of France, Charles X, abdicated after a revolution to protest his rigid control of the press, his dissolution of a newly elected chamber, and his restrictions on the right to vote, which is why ever since France has been a republic. I'm sorry to say, I'm not really sure how this fits into Le Miserable, which I saw in San Francisco last Saturday. I guess that gives me some homework, doesn't it? Well, here's one that comes out of Les Field. Let me ask you this, dear listener. Did you know that it was on August 2nd in 1870 that the world's first tube railway opened in London? It traveled under the Thames near the site of the later Tower Bridge. Apparently, earlier underground trains had been built by the cut-and-cover method, wherein a trench was dug and then roofed over. No, we don't know whether anyone over there attending the Olympics is traveling on a piece of London underground that uh, dates back to 1870, but hey, maybe. It was on this date in 1934 that, with the death of German President Paul von Hindenburg, Chancellor Adolf Hitler became absolute dictator of Germany, with the title of Führer, meaning leader. The German army took an oath of allegiance to its new commander-in-chief, and the last remnants of German democratic government were dismantled to make way for Hitler's Third Reich. Seven years later, on this date in 1939, the German-born American physicist Albert Einstein wrote a letter to U.S. President Franklin D. Roosevelt 
urging watchfulness and, if necessary, quick action on the part of the U.S. in atomic research. Einstein was a lifelong pacifist, but his work did in some oblique way make possible the early atomic research that led to the bomb. This is a rather famous story about Einstein writing this letter. What's generally not known about it is that physicist Leo Szilard, the man who first realized that chain reactions were possible and thus nuclear bombs were possible, he, accompanied by Eugene Wigner and Edward Teller, went over to Einstein to prevail upon him to write such a letter to alert Roosevelt to this possibility. Einstein, of course, at that time was the most famous scientist in the world, which got the intention of FDR. But in truth, the prime mover behind that letter was Sillard. And finally, on this date in 1971, during the Vietnam War, the administration of U.S. President Richard M. Nixon officially acknowledged that the CIA was maintaining a force of 30,000, quote, irregulars, unquote, fighting the communist path at Lao in Laos. This not-too-brilliant strategy by the CIA is why we now have in America so many Hmong and Mian refugees from Laos. The communists won the war. They became personas non grata. Boy, I think every item I just cited has war as a theme, including the L.A. versus Northern California water wars, I guess. Speaking of war, which we were, and the American war machine, which we were not, it is worth pointing out that more bombs were dropped on Laos during the Vietnam conflict than in all of the theaters of World War II combined. And as we mentioned, since the communists took over anyway, one would have to question the military utility of such a wastage of ordnance particularly the use of things like cluster bombs, which are still maiming people in Southeast Asia decades later. Hillary Clinton was just recently in that part of the world and commenting about how, well, this is a terrible thing. Uh, Boy, somebody ought to clean this up. Yeah, somebody ought to. Somebody being the Pentagon. Or perhaps more properly, the military contractors that make so much money from manufacturing this stuff and selling it to Uncle Sam. And then selling him some more after he uses it. And on that topic, uh, next time you go to Hawaii, dear listener, when you're maybe down there on the island of Maui and you look out and you see Lanai and uh, Kahulaui, which I think is the smallest of the Hawaiian islands, keep in mind that it was used for years by the U.S. military as a bombing range. When they finally stopped doing this and I think the 1950s, President Eisenhower promised the territory of Hawaii that, uh, well, don't worry, we'll clean that all up. A promise that, well, surprise, surprise, was reneged upon. There's unexploded bombs all over Kahulaui, which is why you probably won't see it anytime soon on your tourist brochures for visiting the Hawaiian Islands. Admittedly, it wasn't much of a Hawaiian island, being very small and rocky, but but still. Our quote of the day comes from Bertrand Russell, who once said, There are two motives for reading a book. One, that you can enjoy it. The other that you can boast about it. Our quip of the day comes from Woody Allen, who said, show business is not so much dog-eat-dog as dog-doesn't-return-other-dog's phone calls. Our joke of the day comes from Conan O'Brien, who said, before Michael Phelps turned it around, some people are saying that the reason Michael Phelps isn't doing so well is because he let himself get too out of shape. 
I just have to say that I've been watching the Olympics, and if that guy's out of shape, I've been dead for five years. Our statistic of the day is 19, as in Olympic medals won by Michael Phelps. By taking a silver medal in the 200 butterfly and a gold medal in the 4 times 200 meter freestyle, Michael Phelps becomes the all-time medal winner champion for the Olympics, which is a stat we can like, as opposed to those stats about who is winning the most medals among countries. It's not supposed to be about that. And of course, because politics got involved in that sort of thing, who had the bragging rights, uh, we saw over the decades huge abuse of the athletes by the communist bloc, specifically Soviet Union and East Germany, I think were the worst offenders. But with the U.S. and everybody else getting involved in steroids, performance-enhancing drugs, etc., in part so they could boast about who had the best system. Remember back in the 80s when they were really going for private support of the Olympics and trying to show uh, Olympic gold medalists juxtaposed against, you know, McDonald's and various corporations. I remember saying things just to needle people like, well, you know, the Soviets seem to win the most gold medals all the time, so I guess that shows that their system is better than ours. People look at me and say, well, how can that be? That doesn't prove that their system is better than ours. To which I would add, well, then why does waving the American flag when we win them show that our system is better? Or that our corporations must be better? Or that the American way of life must be better? So I think I'm going to get a job writing, writing stories before the Olympics about, you know, fill in the blank athlete had to come adversity in blank and use their love of the sport blank to find self-fulfillment. And, of course, their, their story is inspiring to all of us, and we as a nation stand by and pray for their success. By the way, I'm trying to find the item I just had about the first person who got canned from the Olympics for performance-enhancing drugs. The drug was apparently alcohol, and I think it was a Swedish uh, pistol shooter or <laughs> rifle shooter back in the 40s who got busted for having a drink to steady his nerves because apparently a little bit of alcohol judiciously used can minimize a person's natural tremor and therefore give them an advantage in a shooting contest. Who knew? I have a huge pile of items in front of me. I'm not sure we'll find that one, but it'll, it'll turn up sooner or later. We'll give you the details or as they are discovered. Let's do a couple other stats since we are piling them up. How about this one? The stat is $5.5 million. That is what Joe Paterno negotiated with Penn State at the same time that a grand jury was hearing evidence in the Jerry Sandusky sex abuse case. Paterno got that $5.5 million plus a $3 million bonus for retiring while they forgave $350,000 in loans. I guess we start to see why uh, Paterno wasn't so anxious to let a sex scandal stand in the way, eh? All right, here's some stats for you. According to TheAtlantic.com, 196, 196 super wealthy people have given more than 80% of the super PAC money that's been spent so far in the presidential election. Yes, if you do the math, you'll find out that 80% of the super PAC money is coming from 0.00063% of the country's population. Some would argue that power is sometimes concentrated too much in the hands of a few. This would be a stat that would tend to support that assertion. We would not include Sacramento City Councilwoman Sandy Sheedy in that list, even though the city beat 
column of the Sacramento Bee, noted that the defunct campaign to stop public funding of a downtown sports arena, according to newly released campaign finance records, shows that 13 of the 21 people who donated to stop Sacramento taxpayers opposed to pork listed their occupation as retired. Hmm, that's very sinister. Evidently, Sandy Sheedy, councilwoman, contributed $15,000 of her own money to this campaign, and the remainder of the 20 people ponied up the extra 9000 Now, why Ryan Lillis of the B finds this newsworthy is beyond us. In fact, of making this a so-called news item. The city council spent $680,000 to study this arena. We had an election, and that can't be cheap, to decide whether we were going to have this giveaway to casino owners financed by the public. The proponents of this have been all over the news, and I'm sure they, you know, they weren't donating their time for free to get publicity for this. Mayor Kevin Johnson's flown all over the United States in support of this arena fiasco. And yet Mr. Lillis seems to find it newsworthy that 21 private citizens ponied up their own money to try and stop this. And worse, not only that, these are retirees. We hear back and know people are listening over at the Sacramento Bee, so I would point out that uh, to the editors over there, perhaps you may want to reassign Mr. Lillis to topics he can, you know, maybe focus in on with his indefatigable energy. I'm thinking earwigs in the garden might be a good topic for him. Of course, when I say that, and any other opinion offered in this program, you must know that it does not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. We certainly do have high hopes that City Beat will have more appropriate entries in the future. All right, let's go to the idiot file. This may be, I think, our thickest file today. Starting out with this item. Apparently, Snoop Dogg says he was born again during a visit to Jamaica last year, and he's now changing his name to Snoop Lion. The artist known for his gangsta rap is releasing a reggae album called Reincarnation this fall. And in conjunction with this, we would like to note that Mr. McMillan is now also going to change his name to Edward Lyon, at least for the duration of today's show. Actually, no, let me back out of the idiot file. We'll return to it in just a moment. Let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week this week for avoiding moral hazard after a retired British hooker and madam said she'd have no objection if her 16-year-old daughter followed in her footsteps. Said Becky Adams, at least prostitution is an honest profession. I'd much rather she work as an escort than a banker. We may have more to say about bankers in today's show. I think we're going to have mostly a science theme, but we'll see. The bankers certainly are deserving of more rotten tomatoes. But anyway, we would note that it was a bad week a couple weeks back for Krista McCann of Colorado. She apparently loaded up her car with all of her possessions and fled the state's Waldo Canyon fire. Unfortunately, she crashed while driving through Idaho and her car caught fire. This then led to a wildfire that burned about 2,000 acres. 
All right, it was both a bad and ugly week a few weeks back for counting your chickens after motorcycle racer Ricardo Russo started celebrating his, quote, win, unquote, in an Italian championship race one lap too early. While pumping his fists in the air, (laughs) the riders roared past him and he dropped from first place to 14th. And no, we don't know if that's on YouTube, but it probably ought to be. And finally, in a rare convergence, it was both a good, a bad, and an ugly week for encores. After officials shut off the microphone at Bruce Springsteen's concert in London as he performed Beatles songs with Paul McCartney past the 10.30 p.m. curfew. Apparently, E Street Band guitarist Steve Van Zant said, We break curfew in every country. When did England become a police state? We at Radio Parallax take the position that the UK is not a police state and that there may be more to this story. This correspondent speculates, after occasionally blundering into the Bruce Springsteen station on my Sirius satellite radio, that after listening for a while, officials in London may just have had enough. Because I know when I stumble upon that channel that does wall-to-wall Springsteen, I always know within seconds that it could be no other channel but the Springsteen. Many of these sounds emanating from my speaker do resemble, in numerous respects, music, but certainly not all of them. And uh, Mr. Lyon, have we done the disclaimer? Okay. We need to go back to the stupidity file, but this one's going to take a while, so let's, let's take a break at this juncture. You are listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. And uh, Mr. Lyon, I'm, I'm counting on you for some excellent bumper music. Oh 